That's good. Um, I would like, I would have us turn to 2 Corinthians 5. I'm going to start there this morning. Um, we're just going to have, we're going to take some glimpses of some things I think that's important that we have to hear before we get into our text in James chapter 4 this morning. So you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and then um, to James chapter 4 as well. And um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this passage is extremely important, um, I think, for all of us because Paul is talking about ministry. And um, he's talking about why he's the man that he is and the motivations behind his life. Some of those being a reverent fear of God, the others being a love for God in Christ. But I want to use this passage and a few others in order to direct it to you as God directed it to me personally in my study time um, in James. I want you to discern this morning whether or not you truly know him and whether or not he truly knows you. You see, Paul says here in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, he says in verse 18. And so this morning, it's easy for me, it's easy to, to come to church and assume that, you know, everyone is, is saved in, in the church. It's so easy for us to believe that because Sunday after Sunday we come to church, we sit under the word, we hear the gospel being preached. And if, I mean, some of us even go into midweek Bible studies. Some of us are involved in um, Christian activities outside of church. And if I had to look at your lives from a, from a human perspective, I would look at you and say, you know what, that, that guy, that girl, you know, they really saved. But this morning, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go off that, that assumption this morning that everybody is saved. Because there are some of, some of you that sit here this morning that hear the gospel every Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, yet you're not drawn to the gospel. And, and it, it was hard for me to prepare this study because God's been speaking to me personally. What I'm going to share with you guys this morning is what God's been sharing and placing on my heart personally. And I pray, I pray, I beg you this morning that you listen to me. That not because I'm the best teacher that ever sat before you in this pulpit, because I'm not. I mean, I, I, for a living, I drive a forklift and I drive a crane. But because there's been so many good preachers that sat here in this pulpit and has been, they, they shared the gospel. And I think there's a danger of hearing the gospel, of being under the gospel continually. There's a, there's a great blessing, but there's also a great danger in that. And so let's look at verse 13 in 2 Corinthians uh, 
chapter 5, uh, Paul says, Paul says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of a sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. So what is Paul saying? What are some of the things that govern his life? Well, first of all, it is God. A love for God. A God-word mindset that what he does, he does, he truly longs to do it for God. And when he doesn't do it for God, it hurts him. It breaks him. You look at the life of Paul. He repents. Why do Paul live the, li- live the life that he li- lived? I mean, he was, he was beaten. He was thrown into prison for, for, for sharing the gospel because he did it for God. And the question this morning that I, I would like to ask you, how does your life look? Do, you, do we really live for God on a daily basis? When we wake up in the morning, the first thing in our mind, is it God? Is it really seeking God, re, a desire for his scripture, a desire for, for what God wants for my life today? Or do we really get busy? Or do we, some of us, maybe get up in the morning and only halfway through the day we start thinking of God? And sometimes go through an entire day without even opening the word of God. And so that's the question. Do I do what I do for God? And that's Paul's motivation. And then he says also in verse 13, and if we are of sound mind, it's for you. Another great motivation of his life was what he did, he did not only out of a love of God, but out of a love for God's people. He truly loved God's people. He wanted to be with God's people. He wanted to help God's people. And we see that throughout the the New Testament. We see this idea where the horizontal sort of validates the vertical, where you see in 1 John that if you say that you love God, but you do not love your brother, we see this in Matthew 25 at the division of the nations, the sheep and the goats, that their unbelief in Christ is proven by the fact that they care very little for, for God's people. So the main question is, you know, what are, what are our motives? What are, what's driving, driving our lives? Are we doing what we do for him? And then he goes on and says in verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, notice the inclusive nature of this statement. He's not saying that if some people are in Christ, He's not saying that within the sphere of Christ, there are different degrees. That's not what he's saying. He says that if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ is another way of saying if anyone is Christian. If anyone is saved, they are a new creation. Are you a new creation? Are you a new creature? Now, here we're going beyond the style of life, here we're going beyond just the profession of faith. What we are doing is we, we are going really deep here. We are talking about you in your innermost being. Are you a new creation with new desires, with a different relationship towards God, but also a different relationship towards sin? And so, 
You know, there's, there's a sense in the epistles of Paul when you find, we find it in Romans, Ephesians, and Colossians, this idea where we put on Jesus, we put off, put off the world, and put on Christ. Dress yourself in Christ. And that's true, that's biblical, but he, he's talking here in the context of somebody who has been radically saved from the inside. So Christianity is not prim- primarily about ethics. Christianity is not about picking up a book and finding all these principles to live by and then grinding them out in order to conform your life to those principles. That's not Christianity. Christianity is so powerful. Christianity conversion is so powerful. I, I believe that if a, a man that had... That if a man had to be converted and did not have access to any principles of the, of, of the scriptures, I believe that he would still live a different way. And ha- where's your proof of that, Eugene? Well, look all over the world. People are dying for the, for, for the sake of Christ, in the name of Christ, and, and they don't even have a full copy of the New Testament. Can you give me that bottle of water there, please? And so, and I understand, you know, we, we do need Bibles and we do need to renew our minds. That's very important. But unless inside you are a new creation, all of it is just religion. It's just rule keeping. It's just Phariseeism. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There's the proof. Are you a new, new creation? Can you remember that time? Can you remember a time in your life where you really know, knew that you didn't have any hope? You got to that point where you really had no hope except Jesus Christ. And so, I'm just skipping a lot here because I've got a lot to, to go over. I just would like to give you an illustration of this um, and I'll use the illustration of Charles Spurgeon with the one hog and the two plates of food. Right? So you, you take a beautiful plate of food, best food in Australia, and you place it on the one side. And then you take a pile of trash and you put it on the other side. And then you let loose a hog, a pig. Where's the pig going to go to first? He's going to go to the pile of trash. Why? Because he's a pig. He likes it. He wiggles his tail and he eats it because he likes it. Pigs eat trash. Now, if I had the power to change that pig in a second into a man, what's going to happen? Well, immediately, immediately, if that pig got his head stuck in that bucket and I, I changed him, that dirty food that he was gulping down, that he delighted in, it now sickens him. He can't stomach it. It nauseates him. And he throws it up. And when he pulls his head out and he looks at at you and he sees you, he's going to be ashamed. Because he's not a pig anymore. He's a man. And if that that offends you, I I just told you, I just described to you conversion, a true conversion of a person. Because that's what God does. He changes you. He takes that heart of stone out and he replaces with a, with a heart of flesh. A heart that desires him. A heart that seeks after him. And that's what Paul is saying. Anyone who is, everyone who is in Christ, if you say you are a Christian, are you a new creation? 
And that's the question this morning. And so with that, with that in mind, turn to James chapter 4. The book of James has always been a struggle for me personally. Um, the reason for that is I see the book, when you read the book of James, James, all he does is he just holds up a mirror to you and he says, look at yourself. Just look at yourself. You say you are a Christian. You say you walk with the Lord, but look at your life. Look at what I see. Look what everybody around you see. And it challenges you personally. It's sort of like the same. You find this in John's epistle, isn't it? Where John says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. And so James, right through his epistle, we've seen this, challenges us to examine ourselves. Look into the mirror. Are you really saved? Are you really Christian? Do you really know him? And if you do, and if you say you are Christian, why does your life not show it? For if we know that we are saved by faith and not by works, lest we boast. But James challenges us in saying that faith without works is dead. Real saving faith are always followed by righteous works. It's the fruit of salvation. It's us abiding in the vine and then producing grapes. And so last time, James Stockley, we almost heard the whole sermon again. But last time he finished off chapter 3 of James. And when James, the writer of the epistle, compared these... He basically compared two types of wisdom. First, he spoke about the earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom. And this wisdom is characterized by bitter envy, self-seeking, hearts, and boasting and lying. Then he spoke about heavenly wisdom. And this wisdom is characterized by firstly purity, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. And then he ends chapter 3 with verse 18 saying now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace and now when cha- the chapter changes from chapter 3 to chapter 4 it's it's almost like you can you can feel the tone change as well it's almost like after every sentence you can put an ex- exclamation mark because James is writing to people who confess they are Christians but they are behaving like non-Christians Let's look at the passage. James chapter 4 from verse 1 and we're going to go to verse 10. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So in chapter 1 he starts off by saying, Where do wars and fights come from among you? How did this happen? Where is this coming from? It seems to be a continual condition amongst these people. What was happening in the church was, this was happening because you have people in the church who love, truly love God, trying to get along with people who loves the, love the world. On the one side, you have the peop- those people whose greatest priority is to glorify God, and on the other side, you've got people whose greatest priority is to glorify self. So James answers his question by saying, Where do wars and fights come from? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Now here we're getting to the real thrust of the matter. Where does all this external conflict come from? Well, it comes from your internal conflict. It comes out of your desires for pleasure. The very interesting word, desires, it's the Greek word hedonai. We get the word hedonism from that word. You know what hedonism is? It simply means um, one who loves pleasure. That's a hedonist. The very same word is used in verse 3, and it's translated as evil motives. These readers that James is writing to are driven by their passions, their desires for pleasure. And again, you know, what are our motives? You know, what do we do on a daily basis in church, family life, home, work? Can we honestly say that our very passion that drives every motive in our life is God? Or are we driven by self, gratification, selfish desires, pride, greed? Again, James is just, James is just saying, examine yourself. Can you feel the way James is writing? It's like he's, he's holding up. The, he says, look at yourself. Just examine yourself. And he continues in verse 2. He says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. They are lusting, desiring things. They cannot get it. So what do they do? They murder. So is this really a case where someone actually killed someone in the church? Don't know. It's possible. Don't know. Is, or is this what James is trying to say? Um, the same as what, um, is he referring to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, murder begins in the heart. As to hate your brother is the same as, to com- as committing murder. Could be. Possible. But it seems obvious to me that James is saying that these Jewish believers are desiring something and they are desiring it so much that they are willing to resort to violent acts to get hold of it, hold of what they want. And so, you know, these guys who say they're Christians, you know, James might be saying, you guys say you're a Christian, but your very being is driven by selfish discontentment. Look what you're doing. Covetousness, that longing, longing desire to, to acquire things, if it's money, power, prestige, whatever it is. And so back in chapter 3, James just said 
He just spoke about this earthly wisdom, and he described it there. And I, I believe that's why he's, he's got this tone of voice in um, verse chapter 4. He says, If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast against and lie against the truth. Don't boast and say you are Christian if, if you have these things in your heart. And then in verse 15 of chapter 3, he says, This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there, he said in chapter 3. So he continues. He says, Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You know, um, it's easy for us to try and, you know, to, to live our lives in a way where we can sort of maybe deceive other people and try, making, trying to, to believe that we are Christians or we can even deceive ourselves. But when it comes to prayer, we cannot deceive God. You know, what are our, what are our motives when we go to God in prayer? Remember that what God told Samuel when um, Samuel had to choose, well, God used Samuel to choose the new king of Israel and was David. And Samuel didn't think he was strong enough or outward looks wasn't good enough. Basically, 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 7 says, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When we come to God in prayer, it's not about what I want or what I need. The purpose of prayer is never to get our will done on earth. But so many of our prayers are selfish and sometimes we don't even realize it. The purpose of prayer is to align our will with his and to get God's will to be accomplished on the earth and in our lives. Matthew 6 verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, you know, are we, what's our motives? Is God just a card that we pull out every time we need something? Or when we pray, do we really seek God's face? Do we really yearn to, to, to commune with him, to have relationship with him? Seek his face, seek his will through studying his word every single day and applying his word to our lives. Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it together. So even in prayer, God looks at our heart first. But James is saying, you, you guys, you don't have because you don't even pray. But for those of you who are praying, you don't receive anything because your prayers are filled with selfish motivations. And then he says, verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses. Now keep in mind, he's writing to Jewish readers. They would know exactly what this means. He's talking about spiritual unfaithfulness. He's talking about a prostitution of life. The word adulteresses would immediately remind the Jewish readers that Israel was an adulterous wife to God. 
Jeremiah chapter 3, Ezekiel 6, Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 23, and Isaiah 3. Israelite had a marriage covenant with God. This marriage covenant was made in Exodus chapter 19 to 24 at Mount Sinai between the husband God and the bride Israel. Isaiah chapter 54 shows this marriage relationship. Your maker, your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. But right through the Old Testament, you see the Israelites breaking this covenant with God through idolatry. There's, a, there's someone who actually did the count through the Old Testament and noted that they broke that covenant with God 8,840 times. They were covenant breakers. They were adulterous, unfaithful prostitutes. And you know, we live in a society where if someone had to come up to you and say, you, you're a sinner, it's easy for us just to sort of, yeah, we know that, and sort of laugh it off, you know? So if someone tells you, yeah, you're a sinner, you're like, yeah, I know that. But what if I called you to your face a disloyal traitor and you deserve to go to hell? You would be ready to fight me. But do you know, that's in the Bible, that's what sin is. It's disloyalty. It's disloyalty. You can, you can profess Christ with your mouth, but yet your whole life is a betrayal to everything he did on the cross, to everything that he is. Is our life a betrayal, or do we truly know him? Do we really love him? When your workmates at work, when they make fun of Christians, or if your mates at school or work, whatever, uses the Lord's name in vain. If you watch a movie and every second work is profanity and, and using God's name in between dirty words or whatever, does that really hurt you? Does that really do something to you? Or are we able to just sort of block it out? Are we able to just sort of like, you know, that's the world, you know? Does our life betray him? Or can we betray him? And so, who are this, these readers committing adultery with? Uh, James says in verse 4, with the world, really. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. What's enmity? Hostility. Literally, it means the extreme ill will or hatred that exists between enemies. For to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. Think about that. It's not so much that I am God's enemy than it is that God becomes your enemy, which is a far more fearful perception. There's an excellent book called Worldliness by C.J. Mahaney, and in the book, C.J. says this. He says, Today, the greatest challenge facing Bible-believing Christians is not persecution from the world, but seduction from the world, by the world. Charles Spurgeon said words in his day that I believe will apply directly to us in our day. He said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. 
He says, put your finger on any prosperous page of church's history and you will find a little marginal note that says, this age, people could readily see where the church began and the world ended. Now, what the, pro- the reality is that in the day that we live in today is we cannot tell where the world ends and where the church begins. Study after study shows that our lives as profession- professing Christians looks just like the world around us. We are just as materialistic. We are just as sexually immoral. We are just as self-centered as the world. We look, like, we look just like the world. We walk just like the world. We might, not just, we might not speak or talk like the world, but we smell like the world. And in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John writes in his epistle, underline it. Could there be a more um, important verse for us to this day? He says, do not love the world or the things in the world, period. What John is saying here is, and what the Bible is commanding is we must not love and follow and imitate the ways of the world that is alienated from God and in so many ways are against God. A world that goes on day by day with people gratifying themselves, indulging themselves, entertaining themselves, exalting themselves without regard for the character and commands of God. And what John and James is saying is the church needs to look different. The church Our spending should look different. Our schedules, our marriages, our parenting, purity, possessions, our love, our life should look different, not for the sake of being different, but because we love God and not the world. And then John says right after that, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you love the world or do you love God? You cannot love both. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24? He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Is, is Jesus your God? Is God your God or is this world your God? That's the question that, you know, that, that we have to ask ourselves here. How do you know who, what my God is? Personally, I guess the best answer is, what do you think, think of most? What do you delight in most in your life? If you had just a half an hour of free time in your life, honestly, would you grab the Bible and go study it? Would you go fall on your knees and see God's face? Would you go out and share the gospel with someone who's never heard the word before? That's the challenge here. And that's what we have to ask ourselves. What's driving our lives? What's our motivations in our life? Do we really love God? What consumes you? Ask yourself these things. Examine yourself. I'm not judging you. I'm just begging you to examine yourself because this is so essential. In our walk with God. Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you. What are we imitating? We need to stop trying to look like a cleaner version of the ungodliness around us. Have you come to that point in your life when you realize there's absolutely no hope 
and the consequences for that hopelessness is devastating. That Jesus, that, that the only way is Jesus. And that's what James is saying. He warns all of us that we have to choose. We either serve the world and its lusts, lusts, passions and desires wholeheartedly or you serve God with every breath you take. That's the choice. You're either a friend of God or an enemy of God. There's no in-betweens. And then verse 5, Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Now, this is a really very difficult verse to interpret. One of the reasons is that it seems as if James is quoting an Old Testament verse here. But you can search the entire Old Testament, you will not find this verse here. And so, while the exact words are not found in the Old Testament, James may have been quoting them as being a general teaching of the Old Testament scripture. But I can't, we cannot be dogmatic. There's um, a lot of ways to interpret this um, scripture. The second problem is the capitali- capitalization of the word spirit. You know, is it the spirit of God or is it the spirit of man? Now, the problem here is that the oldest Greek manuscripts have no punctuations, no capitalizations, and no verse divisions at all. So that's what, what the challenge is here for. But, so all of that is basically just an assumption based on the translator's prerogatives. Now, because we don't have a lot of time this morning, I'll just have to ask you just to you know, go and study it and, and, and see for yourself how you would interpret it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not the only right way I can also say I think that I'm right, but we'll just have to see, go on that. But we, you cannot be dogmatic on it, okay? Now, when I look at, at the context of this passage, I would just read it as follows. Do you think that the Bible speaks to no avail that man is bent towards his own will? So I use the small, your Bible's probably got the, the capitalization, New King James in it, but I'll use the small S. That's what my, how I interpret this. Man is bent towards his own will. Man wants his own way. Genesis chapter 8 verse 21. The imaginations of man's heart is evil from his youth. And because uh, we want our own way, we neglect God. We reject God and we pursue the world. But then, verse 6. James says these great words. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Aren't you glad that James wrote those few words in there? That he, God, our holy, glorious God, gives more grace. God is looking for the man and the woman with a humble and a broken and a contrite heart. The humble person in contradiction to the proud person And so he says that God gives more grace. God gives more grace to certain people in order for them to overcome their evil passions and to control their corrupt tendencies than he does to others. And who are those people he gives more grace to? The humble. So God doesn't give more grace to the proud because the proud man resists God in his heart, in his tendencies, in his will. 
and God resists the proud man. But grace is always found among the meek and the humble. So if you are humbled in the sight of God, these things that James are going to mention next in verse 7 to 10 will be evident in your life. But if you are filled with pride and self, James will tell you these things are things that are lacking in your life. This is the fruit of true repentance that he's going to talk about, which, by the way, is an ongoing process of sanctification in a true Christian's life. Look at verse 7. He starts off by saying, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Therefore, submit. Submit. The word is translated from the Greek word hypotasso. The hypo means under, and the tasso means to arrange. The word and the root of it are also translated by words such as subject or subjection. The word's full meaning is to obey put under, be subject to, submit oneself unto, put in subjection under, or be under obedience, or obedient to. That's a lot of words. The word was used as a military term, meaning to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. So what does all that mean? It's basically, it's like enlisting in the Air Force or in the Army or into the Navy. In fact, some people have actually translated the word enlist. It's enlisting under God, in the service of God. This word is a wonderful definition of what it means to submit to God. It means to position oneself under the command of a divine almighty king. It means to align yourself under the authority of God, come under God's authority. It's a process of surrendering our will to that of our Father God. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, um, verse 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. So when I submit, I give my complete allegiance to God. I obey His commands and I follow His leadership. It speaks of readiness to do whatever you're told to do. It means to do the will of God from the heart, no matter what the cost. It's the same thing when Jesus said, if you're not willing to lay down your life, you're not worthy to be my disciple. And then James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, this literally means take a stand against the devil. Take a stand against evil. Now, this doesn't mean that you go out and you're going to see a demon and everything and you're going to rebuke it. And that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is there's, there's no middle ground. You either under the lordship of Satan or under the lordship of God, there's no middle ground. Remember what we spoke about earlier? You cannot serve two masters. You're either going to hate the one and love the other. Becoming the friend of God means immediately becoming the enemy of Satan, which means we are taking a stand against the devil, but it means to take a stand against everything that the devil stands for. You take a stand against the evil. We used to watch those movies, now we don't. We used to go to those places, now we don't. We used to do that, drink that, take that, say that, now we don't. And what James is saying, transfer your, transfer your allegiance to the true God and Satan will flee from you. Isn't that a wonderful promise? And where does your loyalty lie today? That's the question. 
And then he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is drawing near to God is us spending time with God. You know what we spoke about early on when, when God replaced that heart of stone with a heart of flesh? You get that, that heart desires God. He long, it longs for God. It longs for the things of God. It longs for his word. You know, you, you read something in the, in, in the Bible and you just want to worship. So you draw near. We spend time in prayer. We spend time in his word. We meditate on his word and devour it spiritually because we want to. We commune with God through the day. A a scripture that I got here, 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9. We have the instruction from wise father David to his son um, Solomon. He said, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. And serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. It's the same idea when James says, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Seek to know God. Seek to commune with God. Seek to worship God and he will respond. He will come to you. Psalm 145, verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. And then James carries on and he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now hands speak of our actions, behavior and deeds. And hearts speak of motives and desires. We cleanse our hands as sinners and purify our hearts as double-minded people through confession and forsaking our sins, both outward and inward. As sinners, we we need to confess our evil acts. As double-minded people, we need to confess our mixed motives. So in approaching God, we remember the promise in 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when James says, cleanse your hands, he's saying, cleanse your life, cleanse yourself. Stop playing in the mud, if you would. Stop rolling around in the pig pen. Stop doing that stuff that makes you filthy before an all-holy, perfect God. Why do we we not sin? Do, Do we not sin because sin will destroy you? Sin will kill you? That's true. But if that's your only motivation... That's selfish. That's idolatry. A sinner says, I don't want to sin because it's going to hurt me. I don't want to sin because it's going to affect my relationship with God. That's why we don't sin. Because sin separates us from God. And I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, we as Christians do sin. We do fall in sin. But we've got a different relationship to that sin. If, I, if, if you're a real born-again Christian and you sin... And you, immediately you'll, it will feel like a knife piercing through your heart and someone turns it. That's the difference. And so he says, purify your heart. And what he's talking about there is basically saying, I'm not ask, asking only that you turn from the sin that you do, but you turn from the sin that is really you on the inside. It's a heart. It's the heart. Jeremiah said that, It's deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. 
desperately wicked. Our very nature is rooted in sin. But when I submit to God and draw near to him, all of a sudden I have this longing. We spoke about that, 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 that desire, that longing for, for righteousness. Like in Matthew chapter 6, one of the Beatitudes when Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So in our attempt to cleanse our hands and, our, and purify our hearts, God will come and wash us and actually replace our hearts with that new heart. But confession of sin should be accompanied by a deep sorrow for that sin. And so James writes in verse 9, he says, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What does this mean, lament? Well, it means to feel wretched. To feel absolutely, totally miserable. We don't often say that to people, do we? When we share the gospel with them. Because we want them to feel happy. But that's not, that's not what it is. That's not the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that James is saying deny the joy of a Christian life. I think he's just saying it doesn't start there. You have to come to a place where you have shame over your sin before you will really accept and understand the grace of God. Understand that what we've done and what he's done. But I think in church we've lost that um, knowing what the, the real meaning of what salvation is, what Christ done in the cross. I don't, I don't want to... I'll, I'll, I'll just do it. Um, Think about what, what Jesus done for us. You know, it's so easy for us to think, oh, Jesus died on the cross. You know, he was nailed to that cross, you know, because and he, the Roman soldiers, uh, soldiers literally um, brutalized him. And, but that's not the real meaning of the cross. When Jesus was in the garden and he sweat drops of blood, he wasn't sweating blood because he was scared. He was a coward of thinking what... What, what these, knowing that what these Roman soldiers are going to do to me. You know why he was sweating blood? He knew that he was just about to face the wrath of God. The wrath of God due you and me. From Genesis 3 right through to the cross, Jesus had to drink that cup. That's why he prayed. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from uh, let this cup pass me, but not my will, but your will be done. That cup of the wrath of God, that's what Jesus had to drink. And he did. He drank every single drop of it and he threw it down and he said, It is finished. Do you, do we understand that? Do we understand what Jesus has done for us? We deserve that. So true repentance is always shame over sin. You lament, you mourn, you weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Because you see your sin in the presence of an all-holy God, this means gloominess, shame, sorrow, downcast, look on your face. Remember that in Luke 18, the remorseful publican, who wouldn't even lift his face towards heaven. Instead, he had his head bowed and he beat on his chest. 
And he cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home justified because he was overwhelmed with his own sin. And then James wraps it all up in verse 10. And this is the summation of everything. This pulls it all into one statement. James says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He'll save you with his grace. Lifting you up is the same as verse 6. He gives grace. He gives more grace. When you humble yourself, he does that. So humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. The word is tapenu. I think I say it right. I'm not sure. But it means to make yourself low. Voluntary. Put yourself down in the sight of the Lord. Conscious of his presence. Conscious that he is watching and of who he is. That he is infinitely holy. Sovereign, almighty, majestic God. He is so great. He is so mighty. He is so pure. He is so perfect. He is so holy. And then when you see that, you are humbled in his sight. You become like Isaiah, who in, in seeing God cursed himself. And when he said, woe is me, he was saying damnation to me, eternal destruction to me. For I am a man with a dirty mouth. I dwell among people with dirty mouths. You see, when, when he saw God, he, he looked at himself and all he could see was his sin. Every time a person in the Old Testament or in the Bible was face to face with the reality of the presence of the Holy God, the person had that proper response. They were overwhelmed with one great surpassing emotion and that was fear. Because a sinner in the presence of an infinitely holy God is overwhelmed by the sense of sinfulness, which he knows is now exposed. And so he has to have, he has every reason to have fear. Few examples. That's why the disciples were more afraid when Jesus stilled the storm than they were of the storm. It says they were afraid of the storm, afraid they might drown. Jesus stilled the storm and it says they were exceedingly afraid. Why? Because more fearful than having a storm outside of your boat is having a holy God inside of your boat. <laughs> when Jesus came to the shore in Luke, Luke chapter 5 and told Peter where to put his net, he pulled in all the fish. What was Peter's response? Go away, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Why? Because he knew he had just seen the living God control nature. And he was afraid to be exposed to the living God who knew, he knew to be holy because he was a sinful man. That's always the reaction. What a great statement. The perfect illustration is, is the prodigal son in Luke 15. He came home, he drew near, the father drew near to him. He had cleansed his life. He had left the pig slop. He had left the wild living. He had left the drunken orgies. He had come back. He had put that all behind him and had done all the things that James says to do. He, he was submitting to his father and he says, make me a servant. I turn my back on my former life. I draw near to you. You draw near to me. I've cleansed the outside. I want to be clean on the inside. I'm sad, I'm broken, I'm afflicted, I'm mourning, I'm weeping, I'm humbled before you. And what did the father do? He said, kill that fatted calf. Put on a ring on his finger, 
get the best rope, we are having a party, and he, left, he lifted him, and that's grace. That's grace. He gives more grace, greater grace, than we can imagine. And so the cry of James this morning is examine yourself. Examine yourself. Are you really a Christian or are you just saying it? Is, is it just a mere confession? Are we just saying we are Christian or do we really live it? Do we really live for Christ? And I have to tell you guys, you know, this is why it's so, you, you can talk to Aaron. I struggled with this, this passage because God's talking to me as well. What are my motives? What's driving my life? Is it really a love for God? Do I really yearn and long to bring glory to God in every single thing I do? And if I don't, am I broken? Does it hurt me? You know, we started off in 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul told us, therefore if anyone is a new creation, he, he, uh, everyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, all things have passed away and all things have become new. And then Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The concept of dying to self is found right through the New Testament. You look at the apostles. You know, you look at how they lived their lives. I mean, Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know, they, when they woke up in the morning, that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to share the gospel, the truth of Christ with people. Can we do that when we go to work? Do we share the gospel with people at work? Dying to self. It's being part of born again. The old self dies and the new self comes to life. Not only are we born again when we come to salvation, but we also continue dying as, as part of the process of sanctification. And one of the ways that you know your faith is real, genuine and authentic, authentic is that it will continue. It's not necessarily that the emotional high will continue. What will continue is that you will continue to grow in grace. You will continue to deepen in your repentance. You will continue to deepen in your faith. Little by little, you'll be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just... Um, we know you have to do the work 